Welcome to this week's episode of Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to start off by reminding you of the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. Now, this week, we're going to jump in, and we're going to kick into high gear and get going through some of this stuff. We've really spent a lot of time in these first couple of series of walking through the creation of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe. And the reason we spent so much time going down rabbit holes, looking at some of the theories that are out there, is because both of those issues are deal breakers. Both of those issues are so remarkably unlikely from a mathematical perspective or from a logical perspective that both of those issues are just absolute deal breakers going forward. There is no naturalistic explanation to bring the universe into existence from nothing, unless, as some do, you change the definition of nothing, And there is no good explanation for getting around the fine-tuning of the universe short of trying to appeal to actual infinities and multiverses and things like that in an effort to simply escape the math. What we're going to find as we jump this process forward over the next few weeks is we're going to find an enormous number of items that have to perfectly come together in succession, one after another after another. To get from the the Big Bang, the beginning point of the universe, whether you think of it as the creation moment when God created the universe or the Big Bang, whatever you want to call it, from now on, we have to get from that moment all the way forward to us. And we're going to move fairly quick through, quickly through some of these things. I mentioned a few of them on the last episode. On this week's episode, we're going to look at the unlikely formation of galaxies and the early universe, and what had to happen immediately after this creation event, after what what we'll call the Big Bang. What was it that had to happen, and how unlikely is it? Now, none of these things on their own are deal breakers. But you have to have such an enormous string of them lined up together that the cumulative weight of everything that we're going to see, I'm going to make the argument, eventually will raise to that same level. Remember, None of these are one-off events. None of these are events that simply happen on their own, and then we just reset the odds going forward. It would be the equivalent of saying, well, every week we have to win the lottery. And the only way this process keeps going from the Big Bang to us is if we win the lottery every single time the lottery is drawn. Now, winning the lottery once, not a big deal. It's not a problem. But winning the lottery every single time, and you have no choice because if you ever miss once, then all bets are off and you have to start over again. And there's no way to start over again because, as I just said, the first two steps are so remarkably unlikely that you'll never get them off the ground again. So what we see in all of this is each one of these points that we're going to look at points to the fingerprint of intelligence. It points to the fingerprint of design to get us from point A to point B. And at every stage, if they don't happen perfectly, it's a deal breaker and everything is off. So let's continue with this process, and I think you'll see what I mean as we move forward. Now, one of these, we're going to go back to the early universe and all of this. You know, I, I love I love the 4th of July, and it is, I think as a guy, it's one of my favorite holidays. You know, I spent years as a child and then as a parent blowing things up in our driveway, and it was amazing. And we had so much fun, and I, I loved watching my kids grow up, and you kind of have a reset in there where you're no longer doing you know, adult things in your early, in uh, mid-20s, late-20s, 
you're now shifting back and you're doing things that are entertaining for your kids and you're trying not to scare your kids and teach them to use fireworks safely, safety, safely and all that good stuff. But you know what I never, ever noticed? At the end of the evening, I never noticed that we had created something new. We had created a mess. You know, explosions on their own are very good at destroying things. But they are not good at creating things. And I can't think of an exception to that rule. We use them, yes, in the process of creation to remove things. But we don't oftentimes think about what we really need here is an explosion to create something new. Explosions, like I said, are good at destroying things. That's, that's their, their sweet spot. But we're not ever going to see explosions really serve as an explanation for how something new was born, how something new developed. But that's going to be the foundation of this argument going forward. After the Big Bang, which again, remember, the Big Bang cannot be a dud. You know, it can't be something as simple as, well, boop, what pops into existence is a, a single particle or something like that. What has to pop into existence has to have an unimaginable amount of energy. It has to be finely tuned, and it has to explode with just, it has to leap into existence. I don't know if explode is the right word. But it has to leap into existence with pressure and energy and power unimaginable to bring us to where we are today. So it's just setting the stage for where we're going. We're going to jump back in in this early, in this picture of the early universe into the moments after it happened. And we're going to go back to a video that we watched several episodes ago with Stephen Hawking. And he uses, to his credit, this is from a Discovery Channel special, he uses an amazing job, he does an amazing job of presenting to us an example of how this could have happened. But he oversimplifies it tremendously using this example with ball bearings. Let's go ahead and play the video, and then we'll jump in in a minute and talk about what was good about it, what was bad about it. Like, like I said, we've done this one before, so we're not going to spend too much time on it tonight. But let's roll the tape and watch this Discovery Channel special with Stephen Hawking. In the early universe, gravity had a much bigger role to play. Right after the Big Bang, the universe was just gas, almost perfectly spread out throughout space. Over the next 200 million years, gravity began to pull the gas back together to produce the very first structures from which everything else would grow. But even this very nearly didn't happen. If it weren't for another stroke of cosmic luck, there would be no you, no me, no stars or planets or anything at all. We know this because in 1982 a group of scientists, including myself, spent three solid weeks working it out. Although the calculations were hard, demonstrating what we discovered is easy. First, I need a nice flat floor, like this one, for example. This is the dining room in my college. I'm going to fill the place with lots and lots of ball bearings.
These balls represent the matter of the early universe, a thin gas spread out evenly across the vast cosmos. Here's where luck comes in. If they're all the same distance apart, gravity pulls each ball the same amount in all directions. They stay perfectly aligned and precisely nothing happens. Fortunately, one of the basic rules of the universe is that nothing's perfect. Perfection simply doesn't exist. The early universe had a tiny unevenness that can be simulated by removing just five ball bearings. It may not look like much has changed, but to gravity, those missing balls create a giant opportunity. Gravity now pulls more strongly on one side of some of the bearings. The tiny irregularities in the sea of ball bearings have given gravity something to sink its teeth into. And this is exactly what happened back where we left the young universe. Welcome back. Okay, so there's a couple of things you're going to notice in that video. Number one, and in a lot of the videos that we're going to play, clips from Dr. Hawking specials as we go forward, you're going to notice an enormous reliance on, number one, gravity. He gives gravity nearly godlike powers. And number two, luck. And, and again, that works along with the idea of naturalism. Naturalism is, is leaning on chance. It's leaning on luck to get us through this. But the amount of luck and the amount of power that gravity gets in all of this is remarkable. Like I said before, I hope what you noticed in this is how oversimplified the example is. It's a great example, but the reality is instead of a group of ball bearings laying on the floor, the ball bearings should be suspended in three dimensions. And they should be moving apart from each other rapidly. And that's going to be the problem. Gravity on its own doesn't just get a timeout. It doesn't just get to pause. Those things are going to be moving apart at an enormous rate as the early universe is expanding. Gravity doesn't just have to pull things together. Gravity has to stop them from moving apart and then pull them back together. And that is going to prove to be a monumental task like nothing that we can possibly imagine. So our first point in all of this as we look at this week is the difficult task that gravity is going to have pulling this all together. And even by Hawking's own admission, how remarkably unlikely, unlikely it was. You remember, we, we walked through the odds of this earlier, and I'm not going to go through fine-tuning again. But now we're thinking about this practically, and now these fine-tuned events have to start to happen. And this is one of those events. The expansion rate of the universe compared to gravity, they've got to work in perfect concert with each other to start bringing these things back together. But let's say for a minute it happened. That's great. So is the expansion rate of the early universe going to be the only problem that we've got to overcome? We talked about a lot of the other fine-tuning issues that also have to happen, but on top of that, you've got a heat problem. And when the right after the Big Bang, you have an enormous amount of heat and energy present 
that's all being lost. Remember, as everything is expanding apart to create this new universe of ours, heat is rapidly being lost from the explosion. And as you lose that heat, that's going to be enormously problematic because somehow when gravity does its trick and starts bringing these galaxies together, when gravity starts pulling together the first stars and things like that, you've got to get them fired up. And that's going to require heat. I want to go back to Dr. Lewis and Barnes' book again on this question as we talk about the rapid cooling of the universe and the problem that that's going to pose. In the first few minutes of the universe, gravity's cooling effect doesn't much care whether nuclear reactions are taking place. The universe will expand and cool regardless. Thus, the nuclear reactions have one and only one chance there is one short period of time when the universe has the right temperature to power a certain reaction. And if the, regular, if the right ingredients aren't ready, then too bad. The temperature isn't going back up. I love that quote, and I love the way it puts the problem into an easy perspective for us to understand. You have, in this situation, you need heat. You need heat and pressure and all of those things to fire up a star. And gravity is going to be able to pull all of this together, but the problem is, if the heat's already gone, if you can't light that match, if you can't light the fuse and get it going, gravity can sit there all day long pulling things together, but there's got to be enough heat to actually trigger the first reactions to light up a star and get it going. If that match won't light because there's no heat, you don't get a second chance at it. So not only does gravity have to race the expansion of the universe, but it's got to work quickly enough to pull everything back together to actually ignite the stars to get them to fire up and get going. This is going to be pivotal because the as the, as the early universe comes together, as galaxies are formed and start to pull together, the building blocks for life are not going to be there. The building blocks for life are born in the first generation of stars, those stars that no longer exist. This is going to be our third and final point today, but it goes back to Fred Hoyle's discovery that we talked about here a few episodes ago. Remember, when we started on this question of fine-tuning, it was Fred Hoyle's discovery of how carbon was made that was one of the very first, one of the very first examples of fine-tuning that scientists ran into. And what Hoyle determined, and this is going to be our third and last example today that we look at, what Hoyle determined was everything had to come together so spectacularly in that first generation of stars to be able to produce the carbon that would ultimately make up us in the next generation of stars and the next generation of planets and solar systems and things like that the odds of it, again, are just remarkably small. So again, we see this idea of fine-tuning starting to come into practical application. So we have the expansion rate of the early universe. We have the heat. And our third item now is we've got to bring all of this together in that first generation of stars. And it's got to be brought together just perfectly because if the stars... I don't Again, this is going to be the Goldilocks argument we're going to talk about over and over again. But if you think about those four fundamental forces that drive a lot of what happens inside of stars, you have gravity, the gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. As those all come together, there is this delicate and intricate dance between the four of them and an enormous number of other factors that have to come into play to be able to produce the materials that will ultimately be necessary for us. If Earth doesn't have all the right materials on it, we're never going to form. You're never going to get an us. 
So it's this intricate recipe book, and there's no run into the grocery store. The only way this happens is these items are produced in that very first generation of stars, and it has to happen in exactly a perfect way. And if it doesn't, not only if it doesn't produce them, but if those stars don't die in exactly the right way, if they don't explode and get and, and release into the universe all of these wonderful things that they've produced, those things that are going to make up us, nothing happens. And remember, at each step along the way, you need every one of these things to happen. So you need the expansion rate to be taken care of just right and in the right amount of time to keep the heat going to fire up the early stars. And the early stars have to come together in such a way and be a particular kind of star to burn just right. Again, not too hot, not too cold. It's the Goldilocks thing. The stars have to be just right. And if the stars aren't just right, they don't produce the metals that we need carbon and the other materials that we're going to need to produce our little planet, our solar system, and the next generation of stars and planets to actually get to a life-producing a life universe, a universe capable of supporting us. It's not just that the universe has to be friendly with the right conditions. The right conditions include the right materials, the right building blocks. So you've got to pile all three of these up together as you start to pull together the Milky Way galaxy as we know it today. And so we've begun this journey from nothing to where we are today. And as we get ready to start pulling these things together at each step along the way, and there are others that we could put in here too, but again, we're going to move this process along so we can get to a conclusion and start looking at, okay, were we created or did we evolve from nothingness? And then the question is, if we were created, which I believe that's the outcome we're going to reach in this journey, then who is that creator? And I think we're all probably anxious to get to that question. So as we move through this, I, again, I love Hoyle's quote. Remember, this was what we talked about as Fred Hoyle discovered all of this. He said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with chemistry and biology. And there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me to be so overwhelming as to put the conclusion almost beyond question. Again, that's Fred Hoyle. Hoyle, I think, died an agnostic at the time that he had discovered these things. He was an atheist. So this isn't coming from Christianity. This was coming from a scientist, one of the most brilliant scientists of his day, who discovered this early idea of fine-tuning. But now we start to see how all of that works together to bring us to where we are today. And so you can see how unlikely this journey is. We've taken three small steps, but every one of them has to happen perfectly in order to get us to the next step. So what's the alternative? Well, I think the alternative is pretty straightforward. We recognize the hand of intelligence to move this process forward at every step of the way. You know, I think about, you know, there's a chicken Parmesan dish that my wife makes. It's one of my favorites, other than the fact that it dirties every single dish that we have in the kitchen. But when we make that for dinner, you know, the materials don't just happen by chance. We have to go to the grocery store and buy the ingredients. She has to put them together in exactly the right order, in exactly the right process. It doesn't do any good to cook the chicken and then try to season it and try to get the sauce ready afterwards. You have to do all of that in perfect order so that dinner comes out correctly. The oven doesn't just happen to come on at the right temperature. It's set at the right temperature by the intelligent designer who's creating dinner. 
Every ingredient is painstakingly put together at exactly the right time, in exactly the right order, to produce the desired result. How much more difficult is the universe than dinner? But no one would assume that dinner simply materialized on its own on the table. That would be ridiculous. And yet at the same time, we look at this recognizing that all of these things had to be in exactly the right order in the most ridiculously unlikely of ways. All of them had to come together just perfectly to make this happen. And it's so much more complex. The hand of intelligence at some point has to be recognized. We can't just keep saying over and over again, well, luck rules the day. Good thing we all just got lucky. That only works so far. And, and I think we're at that place again of starting to see these things build up. We had our first two that were impossible. And now we're starting to pile together all of these steps to get us from the Big Bang all the way up to our little planet before we ever talk about us being life forms on that planet. And trust me, we got some deal breakers coming when we get to there that Charles Darwin cannot explain. So I think this is a good place to stop. And next week, we're going to continue this journey looking forward at our little slice of the universe, the Milky Way galaxy, and more specifically, our place in it, where we sit. Is it just, you know, the Copernican ideal? Or is it something way more complex and way more specialized? And I think you'll find it's the latter. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Seeking Proof, Finding Grace. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, I hope you'll consider liking the podcast and subscribing to our channel. You can find our podcast, obviously, on YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. You can find us on our website at prooftograce.com, and you can find us on our, you can reach out to us via email at prooftograce at yahoo.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope as, as we continue on into 2024, that you're looking forward to building that relationship with a creator who loved you so much. He did all of this for you. All of this is, is just this grand invitation waiting for you. And I hope this is the year that you'll accept that invitation with an open heart. Thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.